Chapter Seventeen of the Uncommercial Traveller. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Uncommercial Traveller by Charles Dickens. Chapter Seventeen. The Italian Prisoner. The rising of the Italian people from under their unutterable wrongs and the tardy burst of day upon them after the long, long night of oppression that has darkened their beautiful country, have naturally caused my mind to dwell often of late on my own small wanderings in Italy. Connected with them is a curious little drama in which the character I myself sustained was so very subordinate that I may relate its story without any fear of being suspected of self-display. It is strictly a true story. I am newly arrived one summer evening in a certain small town on the Mediterranean. I have had my dinner at the inn, and I and the mosquitoes are coming out into the streets together. It is far from Naples, but a bright, brown, plump little woman-servant at the inn is a Neapolitan, and is so vivaciously expert in pantomimic action that in a single moment of answering my request to have a pair of shoes cleaned which I have left upstairs, she plies imaginary brushes, and goes completely through the motions of polishing the shoes up and laying them at my feet. I smile at the brisk little woman in perfect satisfaction with her briskness, and the brisk little woman, amiably pleased with me because I am pleased with her, claps her hands and laughs delightfully. We are in the inn-yard. As the little woman's bright eyes sparkle on the cigarette I am smoking, I make bold to offer her one. She accepts it none the less merrily because I touch a most charming little dimple on her fat cheek with its light paper end. Glancing up at the many green lattices to assure herself that the mistress is not looking on, the little woman then puts her two little dimple arms akimbo, and stands on tiptoe to light her cigarette at mine. And now, dear little sir, she says, puffing out smoke in a most innocent and cherubic manner, keep quite straight on, take the first to the right, and probably you will see him standing at his door. I gave a commission to him, and I have been inquiring about him. I have carried the commission about Italy several months. Before I left England there came to me one night a certain generous and gentle English nobleman, he is dead in these days when I relate the story, and exiles have lost their best British friend. With this request, whenever you come to such a town, will you seek out one Giovanni Calavero, who keeps a little wine-shop there, mention my name to him suddenly, and observe how it affects him? I accepted the trust, and am on my way to discharge it. The Sirocco has been blowing all day and it is a hot, unwholesome evening with no cool sea-breeze. Mosquitoes and fireflies are lively enough, but most other creatures are faint. The coquettish airs of pretty young women in the tiniest and wickedest of dolls' straw hats, who lean out at opened lattice blinds, are almost the only airs stirring. Very ugly and haggard old women with distaffs, and with a grey toe upon them that looks as if they were spinning out their own hair, I suppose they were once pretty too, but it is very difficult to believe so, sit on the footway leaning against house walls. Everybody who has come for water at the fountain stays there, 
and seems incapable of any such energetic idea as going home. Vespers are over, though not so long but that I can smell the heavy resinous incense as I pass the church. No man seems to be at work save the coppersmith. In an Italian town he is always at work, and always thumping in the deadliest manner. I keep straight on, and come in due time to the first on the right, a narrow, dull street, where I see a well-favoured man of good stature and military bearing, in a great cloak, standing at a door. Drawing nearer to this threshold, I see it is the threshold of a small wine-shop, and I can just make out in the dim light the inscription that it is kept by Giovanni Calavero. I touch my hat to the figure in the cloak, and pass in, and draw a stool to a little table. The lamp, just such another as they dig out of Pompeii, is lighted, but the place is empty. The figure in the cloak has followed me in, and stands before me. The master? At your service, sir. Please to give me a glass of the wine of the country. He turns to a little counter to get it. As his striking face is pale, and his action is evidently that of an enfeebled man, I remark that I fear he has been ill. It is not much, he courteously and gravely answers, though bad while it lasts, the fever. As he sets the wine on the little table, to his manifest surprise, I lay my hand on the back of his, look him in the face, and say in a low voice, I am an Englishman, and you are acquainted with a friend of mine. Do you recollect? And I mention the name of my generous countryman. Instantly he utters a loud cry, bursts into tears, and falls on his knees at my feet, clasping my legs and both his arms, and bowing his head to the ground. Some years ago this man at my feet, whose overfraught heart is heaving as if it would burst from his breast, and whose tears are wet upon the dress I wear, was a galley-slave in the north of Italy. He was a political offender, having been concerned in the then last rising, and was sentenced to imprisonment for life. That he would have died in his chains is certain, but for the circumstance that the Englishman happened to visit his prison. It was one of the vile old prisons of Italy, and a part of it was below the waters of the harbour. The place of his confinement was an arched underground and underwater gallery, with a grill-gate at the entrance, through which it received such light and air as it got. Its condition was insufferably foul, and a stranger could hardly breathe in it, or see in it with the aid of a torch. At the upper end of this dungeon, and consequently in the worst position as being the furthest removed from light and air, the Englishman first beheld him sitting on an iron bedstead to which he was chained by a heavy chain. His countenance impressed the Englishman as having nothing in common with the faces of the malefactors with whom he was associated, and he talked with him, and learned how he came to be there. When the Englishman emerged from the dreadful den into the light of day, he asked his conductor, the governor of the jail, why Giovanni Calavero was put into the worst place because he is particularly recommended, was the stringent answer. Recommended, that is to say, for death? Excuse me, particularly recommended, was again the answer. He has a bad tumour on his neck, no doubt occasioned by the hardship of his miserable life. If he continues to be neglected, and he remains where he is, it will kill him. Excuse me, I can do nothing, he is particularly recommended. 
The Englishman was staying in that town, and he went to his home there. But the figure of this man chained to the bedstead made it no home, and destroyed his rest and peace. He was an Englishman of an extraordinarily tender heart, and he could not bear the picture. He went back to the prison grate, went back again and again, and talked to the man and cheered him. He used his utmost influence to get the man unchained from the bedstead, were it only for ever so short a time in the day, and permitted to come to the grate. It took a long time, but the Englishman's station, personal character, and steadiness of purpose wore out opposition so far, and that grace was at last accorded. Through the bars, when he could thus get light upon the tumour, the Englishman lanced it, and it did well and healed. His strong interest in the prisoner had greatly increased by this time, and he formed the desperate resolution that he would exert his utmost self-devotion and use his utmost efforts to get Carlaviro pardoned. If the prisoner had been a brigand and a murderer, if he had committed every non-political crime in the Newgate calendar and out of it, nothing would have been easier than for a man of any court or priestly influence to obtain his release. As it was, nothing could have been more difficult. Italian authorities, and English authorities who had interest with them, alike assured the Englishman that his object was hopeless. He met with nothing but evasion, refusal, and ridicule. His political prisoner became a joke in the place. It was especially observable that English circumlocution and English society, on its travels, were as humorous on the subject as circumlocution and society may be on any subject without loss of caste. But the Englishman possessed, and proved it well in his life, a courage very uncommon among us. He had not the least fear of being considered a bore in a good humane cause. So he went on persistently trying, and trying, and trying, to get Giovanni Calavero out. That prisoner had been rigorously rechained after the tumour operation, and it was not likely that his miserable life could last very long. One day, when all the town knew about the Englishman and his political prisoner, there came to the Englishman a certain sprightly Italian advocate of whom he had some knowledge, and he made this strange proposal. Give me a hundred pounds to obtain Carlavero's release. I think I can get him a pardon with that money, but I cannot tell you what I am going to do with the money, nor must you ever ask me the question if I succeed, nor must you ever ask me for an account of the money if I fail. The Englishman decided to hazard the hundred pounds. He did so and heard not another word of the matter. For half a year and more the advocate made no sign, and never once took on, in any way, to have the subject on his mind. The Englishman was then obliged to change his residence to another and more famous town in the north of Italy. He parted from the poor prisoner with a sorrowful heart, as from a doomed man for whom there was no release but death. The Englishman lived in his new place of abode another half-year and more, and had no tidings of the wretched prisoner. At length, one day, he received from the advocate a cool, concise, mysterious note to this effect. If you still wish to bestow that benefit upon the man in whom you were once interested, send me fifty pounds more, and I think it can be insured. Now, the Englishman had long settled in his mind that the advocate was a heartless sharper, who had preyed upon his credulity and his interest in an unfortunate sufferer. 
So he sat down and wrote a dry answer, giving the advocate to understand that he was wiser now than he had been formerly, and that no more money was extractable from his pocket. He lived outside the city gates, some mile or two from the post office, and was accustomed to walk into the city with his letters and post them himself. On a lovely spring day, when the sky was exquisitely blue, and the sea divinely beautiful, he took his usual walk, carrying this letter to the advocate in his pocket. As he went along, his gentle heart was much moved by the loveliness of the prospect, and by the thought of the slowly dying prisoner chained to the bedstead, for whom the universe had no delights. As he drew nearer and nearer to the city where he was to post the letter, he became very uneasy in his mind. He debated with himself, was it remotely possible, after all, that the sum of fifty pounds could restore the fellow-creature whom he pitied so much, and for whom he had striven so hard, to liberty? He was not a conventionally rich Englishman, very far from that, but he had a spare fifty pounds at the banker's. He resolved to risk it. Without doubt, God has recompensed him for the resolution. He went to the banker's, and got a bill for the amount, and enclosed it in a letter to the advocate that I wish I could have seen. He simply told the advocate that he was quite a poor man, and that he was sensible it might be a great weakness in him to part with so much money on the faith of so vague a communication, but that there it was, and that he prayed the advocate to make good use of it. If he did otherwise, no good could ever come of it, and it would lie heavy on his soul one day. Within a week the Englishman was sitting at his breakfast when he heard some suppressed sounds of agitation on the staircase, and Giovanni Carlovero leapt into the room and fell upon his breast a free man. Conscious of having wronged the advocate in his own thoughts, the Englishman wrote him an earnest and grateful letter, avowing the fact, and entreating him to confide by what means and through what agency he had succeeded so well. The advocate returned for answer through the post. There are many things, as you know, in this Italy of ours, that are safest and best not even spoken of, far less written of. We may meet one day, and then I may tell you what you want to know. Not here and now. But the two never did meet again. The advocate was dead when the Englishman gave me my trust, and how the man had been set free remained as great a mystery to the Englishman, and to the man himself, as it was to me. But I knew this. Here was the man, this sultry night, on his knees at my feet, because I was the Englishman's friend. Here were his tears upon my dress. Here were his sobs choking his utterance. Here were his kisses on my hands, because they had touched the hands that had worked out his release. He had no need to tell me it would be happiness to him to die for his benefactor. I doubt if I ever saw real, sterling, fervent gratitude of soul before or since. He was much watched and suspected, he said, and had had enough to do to keep himself out of trouble. This, and his not having prospered in his worldly affairs, had led to his having failed in his usual communications to the Englishman for, as I now remember the period, some two or three years. But his prospects were brighter, and his wife, who had been very ill, had recovered, and his fever had left him, and he had bought a little vineyard, and would I carry to his benefactor the first of its wine? 
I, that I would, I told him with enthusiasm, and not a drop of it should be spilled or lost. He had cautiously closed the door before speaking of himself, and had talked with such excessive emotion and in a provincial Italian so difficult to understand, that I had more than once been obliged to stop him and beg him to have compassion on me and be slower and calmer. By degrees he became so, and tranquilly walked back with me to the hotel. There I sat down before I went to bed and wrote a faithful account of him to the Englishman, which I concluded by saying that I would bring the wine home against any difficulties, every drop. Early next morning, when I came out at the hotel door to pursue my journey, I found my friend waiting with one of those immense bottles in which the Italian peasants store their wine, a bottle holding some half-dozen gallons, bound round with basket-work for greater safety in the journey. I see him now, in the bright sunshine, tears of gratitude in his eyes, proudly inviting my attention to this corpulent bottle. At the street-corner hard by, two high-flavoured, able-bodied monks pretending to talk together, but keeping their four evil eyes upon us. How the bottle had been got there did not appear, but the difficulty of getting it into the ramshackle Vetturino carriage in which I was departing was so great, and it took up so much room when it was got in, that I elected to sit outside. The last I saw of Giovanni Calavero was his running through the town by the side of the jingling wheels, clasping my hand as I stretched it down from the box, charging me with a thousand last loving and dutiful messages to his dear patron, and finally looking in at the bottle as it reposed inside, with an admiration of its honourable way of travelling that was beyond measure delightful. And now what disquiet of mind this dearly beloved and highly treasured bottle began to cost me no man knows. It was my precious charge through a long tour, and for hundreds of miles I never had it off my mind by day or by night. Over bad roads, and they were many, I clung to it with affectionate desperation. Up mountains I looked in at it, and saw it helplessly tilting over on its back with terror. At innumerable indoors, when the weather was bad, I was obliged to be put into my vehicle before the bottle could be got in, and was obliged to have the bottle lifted out before human aid could come near me. The imp of the same name, except that his associations were all evil and these associations were all good, would have been a less troublesome travelling companion. I might have served Mr. Cruikshank as a subject for a new illustration of the miseries of the bottle. The National Temperance Society might have made a powerful tract of me. The suspicions that attached to this innocent bottle greatly aggravated my difficulties. It was like the apple pie in the child's book. Palmer pouted at it, Modena mocked it, Tuscany tackled it, Naples nibbled it, Rome refused it, Austria accused it, soldiers suspected it, Jesuits jobbed it. I composed a neat oration, developing my inoffensive intentions in connection with this bottle, and delivered it in an infinity of guardhouses, at a multitude of town gates, and on every drawbridge, angle, and rampart of a complete system of fortifications. Fifty times a day I got down to harangue an infuriated soldiery about the bottle. 
through the filthy degradation of the abject and vile Roman states, I had as much difficulty in working my way with the bottle as if it had bottled up a complete system of heretical theology. In the Neapolitan country, where everybody was a spy, a soldier, a priest, or a lazaroni, the shameless beggars of all four denominations incessantly pounced on the bottle and made it a pretext for extorting money from me. Choirs, choirs do I say, reams, of forms illegibly printed on whitey-brown paper were filled up about the bottle, and it was the subject of more stamping and sanding than I had ever seen before. In consequence of which haze of sand, perhaps, it was always irregular, and always latent with dismal penalties of going back or not going forward, which were only to be abated by the silver crossing of a base hand poked shirtless out of a ragged uniform sleeve. Under all discouragements, however, I stuck to my bottle, and held firm to my resolution that every drop of its contents should reach the bottle's destination. The latter refinement cost me a separate heap of troubles on its own separate account. What corkscrews did I see the military power bring out against that bottle? What gimlets, spikes, divining rods, gauges, and unknown tests and instruments? At some places they persisted in declaring that the wine must not be passed without being opened and tasted. I, pleading to the contrary, used then to argue the question seated on the bottle, lest they should open it in spite of me. In the southern parts of Italy more violence, shrieking, face-making, and gesticulating greater vehemence of speech and countenance and action went on about that bottle than would attend fifty murders in a northern latitude. It raised important functionaries out of their beds in the dead of night. I have known half a dozen military lanterns to disperse themselves at all points of a great steeping piazza, each lantern summoning some official creature to get up, put on his cocked hat, instantly, and come and stop the bottle. It was characteristic that while this innocent bottle had such immense difficulty in getting from little town to town, Signor Mazzini and the Fiery Cross were traversing Italy from end to end. Still, I stuck to my bottle like any fine old English gentleman all of the olden time. The more the bottle was interfered with, the stauncher I became, if possible, in my first determination that my countrymen should have it delivered to him intact, as the man whom he had so nobly restored to life and liberty had delivered it to me. If ever I had been obstinate in my days, and I may have been, say, once or twice, I was obstinate about the bottle. But I made it a rule always to keep a pocket full of small coin at its service, and never to be out of temper in its cause. Thus I and the bottle made our way. Once we had a breakdown, rather a bad breakdown, on a steep high place with the sea below us, on a tempestuous evening when it blew great guns. We were driving four wild horses abreast, southern fashion, and there was some little difficulty in stopping them. I was outside and not thrown off, but no words can describe my feelings when I saw the bottle, travelling inside as usual, burst the door open and roll a beastly out into the road. A blessed bottle with a charmed existence he took no hurt, and we repaired damage and went on triumphant. A thousand representations were made to me that the bottle must be left at this place or that, and called for again. 
I never yielded to one of them, and never parted from the bottle, on any pretense, consideration, threat, or entreaty. I had no faith in any official receipt for the bottle, and nothing would induce me to accept one. These unmanageable politics at last brought me, and the bottle, still triumphant, to Genoa. There I took a tender and reluctant leave of him for a few weeks, and consigned him to a trusty English captain, to be conveyed to the port of London by sea. While the bottle was on his voyage to England, I read the shipping intelligence as anxiously as if I had been an underwriter. There was some stormy weather after I myself had got to England by way of Switzerland and France, and my mind greatly misgave me that the bottle might be wrecked. At last, to my great joy, I received notice of his safe arrival, and immediately went down to St. Catherine's docks, and found him in a state of honourable captivity in the custom-house. The wine was mere vinegar when I set it down before the generous Englishman. Probably had it been something like vinegar when I took it up from Giovanni Calavero, but not a drop of it was spilled or gone. And the Englishman told me, with much emotion in his face and voice, that he had never tasted wine that seemed to him so sweet and sound. And long afterwards the bottle graced his table. And the last time I saw him in this world that misses him, he took me aside in a crowd to say with his amiable smile, We were talking of you only to-day at dinner, and I wished you had been there, for I had some claret up in Calavero's bottle. End of chapter 17 Recording by John Trevithick